In the last uh, 15 years, the UK has been devastated by a series of floods that have caused enormous physical and economic damage, seriously affecting people's physical and mental health. Not like this, but the estimated costs, for example, of the 2015 events in northern England was probably something in excess of £5 billion. Um, Media coverage, of course, has included all sorts of allegations about the incompetence of various people, scientists, weather forecasters, planners, builders, water companies. And there is lots of conspiracy theories, fake news, and alternative facts. And I want to explore tonight whether the latest scientific evidence about the causes of recent floods can dispel some of the myths about our ability to control the rising waters. Now, as I, write, uh, as I wrote this lecture earlier this week, that's obviously for the benefit of those watching online and catching up later, that's late May 2018, localised flash flooding has hit Birmingham in central England. I'm very contemporary, you see. At least one person has drowned, caught in their car in almost two metres of water. And Edgbaston, part of Birmingham, received 58 millimetres of rain in an hour on Sunday this week, and 81 millimetres in a 12-hour period, something like that, if you imagine that, according to the Meteorological Office, 81 millimetres in 12 hours. The monthly average for that area of England is 55 millimetres, so it was certainly unusual. I'm going to show you a couple of short extracts of video. The video is not very good because people are not setting out to capture flash, flash flooding. So this was actually a bit of BBC video, but they caught it from somebody else. And some of you will have seen this, I'm sure, uh, on, on, the, uh, on the TV news. Look at where the water's coming from. I think that's, where the, that's very close to where the man died, sadly. Um, then this is another bit of amateur video in a suburban area. If you look at the depth of the water, you can see it's up round the window sills of some of the houses. Okay, so we've got, um, if you regard, uh, if you look at that video very carefully, we've got water coming from adjacent rural areas coming into the city. We've got flow down the steps over impermeable paved surfaces, and we've actually got sewers that are unable to cope with the sudden volume of water that's running down, actually, as you see perhaps here, or you can guess here, into what is a small river channel. Areas of Northampton and several other parts of the English Midlands have also flooded in the last few days, um, not to the extent of the flooding there in, uh, in England in 2012 or 2007, but nevertheless sufficiently seriously to create millions of pounds of damage and to make us question again why it happens. There's some pictures of uh, Staffordshire again taken in the last two or three days. Um, some of you may know some of these areas. Uh, just to add to the, the illustrations here, um, what you're often looking at here is not just 
water, but sewage that's flooding into people's houses, which is obviously very, very unpleasant. Now, these events make us question whether somebody is to blame and why it's happening. Perhaps the river channels are silted up. Perhaps the topsoil has been eroded or baked and it's created more overland flow. Or perhaps, as the suggestion here, somebody has mismanaged something, some sluice gate or a bridge was blocked or one area was deliberately flooded to save another. Certainly, we say immediately after the event that not enough money is being spent on flood protection. But our memories, of course, are very, very short. We also observe um, blame being apportioned often by very ill-informed politicians in astonishingly new Wellington boots um, in the immediate aftermath. And they say things like, the Environment Agency needs investigating, the local council is responsible, the water companies need to do something. Surely somebody must be culpable for what is seemingly a growing and inexorable challenge. Now, in fact... River and related flooding is a major challenge globally. And in March this year, the European Academics Science Advisory Council and the flood insurer Munich Re reported that floods and extreme rainfall events have increased by more than 50% in the last decade. And they are now four times the rate of the 1980s. And you can see this analysis here suggesting that extreme weather events of which floods are important, uh, con uh, component, uh, are the top-ranked risk uh, of the next 10 years for insurers. Climate-related losses rose 92% in the last seven or eight years. I mean, that's a big increase. Flooding, uh, sorry, and, and um, this analysis by the World Economic Forum last year is it's perhaps a bit difficult to see. What it is, is it's analysis of risk where we have, along the bottom of the... I don't think I have a pointer here, but along the bottom axis here, we've got the likelihood of something happening from low at the left to very high on the right. And at the side here, we've got the impact from low at the bottom to high at the top. So something like weapons of mass destruction um, would have a very big impact if Trump goes completely crazy or the inhabitants of North Korea uh, decide they want to make a statement of some sort. But the likelihood, according to this analysis, is very low. And we've got other things on here like data fraud, which we've just seen happen. This was done in 2017, um, which the likelihood is regarded as very uh, high, but the impact relatively low. And then if you look at the top right, the most likely with the biggest impact is extreme weather events and natural disasters. So this is done for the insurance industry. This is telling us that this issue matters. Now, of course, um, the 19th in the 19th century, there were also concerns about London flooding. Uh, this is pictures in uh, the Harmsworth magazine showing London as Venice. So we've got there, uh, um, it says in the picture, you can probably can't quite see it, it says uh, uh, Regente Street and the Cattedrale di San Paolo. Uh, in the bottom there. But you can see the idea. Flooding was thought to be significant then. And of course, again, internationally, Paris has recently experienced flooding too in January in the Seine. 
And beyond that, the UK risk is thought by scientists likely to intensify. Climate change seems to be increasing the, the risk of high-intensity flood-generating events, and growing urbanisation has increased the risk, not only by paving surfaces, but also it's putting more people in harm's way, and those people own more property and more things. So as people get wealthier, the risk statistically and financially goes up. So what's being said is that our flood strategy is failing, even though events come and go. Public spending, as I said earlier, is intermittent following a flood, but it evaporates very quickly afterwards. And it's skewed at the moment towards dealing with the aftermath of the flood rather than preventing or reducing it or addressing the misery that floods cause. Now, today, I'm going to pack some science into the beginning of this talk. I'm going to focus particularly on flooding that develops over land surfaces, fluvial floods coming from rivers, streams, and sewers. And I'm going largely to ignore sea level change and coastal flooding. But I, did, I couldn't resist uh, showing you something before I do that. This is a diagram that was produced a couple of years ago showing um, the actual change in mean sea level based on a number of satellites and produced by NASA, and it's showing an increase of 3.2 millimetres a year. Now, that's disputed, actually. That figure is disputed. But sea level is probably increasing. But what I liked particularly was this quote here from a Republican senator in uh, Alabama, and he says, now you've got less space in those oceans because the bottom is moving up. What about the White Cliffs of Dover? And what he's saying is, because there are cliffs crashing into the sea, that displaces water, which forces it to rise, doesn't it? Now, if you think about the White Cliffs of Dover and how much is dropping off them, it's not really, in my opinion, and in most scientists, likely to account for 3.2 millimetres of ocean uh, rise year on year. But um, there's no doubt that the point I want to make is here is that opinions differ and people say things, some of which may be true, some of which may not be true. In fact, he went on to say that there was no need to do anything about carbon emissions because the Antarctic ice sheet was growing and the climate was actually cooling. Now, whether or not you agree with that, most scientists do not agree with that. And um, uh, I might even pigeonhole it in, the, in, in a little pigeonhole labelled lies, and I would start to wonder where his income was coming from. Um, so, anyway, that's all I'm going to say about sea level rise, and I'm not going to say very much about groundwater flooding either, though it does happen in some areas um, and in the UK, and particularly around areas of chalk, such as in the map here. So you can see um, the green area here, this is just um, outside London, and... Um, it's actually illustrating a research project that's going on at the moment, looking at groundwater flooding in some river basins near High Wycombe. I don't know whether we've got anybody from High Wycombe here tonight, but groundwater does emerge from, um, um, or does come out on the surface periodically. It's usually very localised and relatively shallow, although it can be rather persistent, and the results of this... Um, this research project that's been looked at uh, recently uh, uh, just shows, I think, the most important thing to note there is that the, the areas at the bottom of the valleys, which is where the groundwater flooding occurs, 
are in turquoise, but the water is 20, 10 centimetres deep, so it's not huge, and it's not moving very fast either. Um, the royal blue areas, there are some tiny areas of royal blue where water might reach 30 centimetres deep, but it's not, in my opinion, a major problem, and the water is quite clean, usually, because it's, it's seeping out of the ground. Um, so uh, I would say that's less important than, than some of the other um, reasons for flooding. So let me turn to those land areas that flood. Now, land areas flood for several reasons, and I just want to start by talking through what actually happens. And firstly, and self-evidently, before a flood, it rains usually heavily. I've got a diagram here showing the, um, the rainstorm that was responsible for the very serious flooding in Gloucestershire and the River Severn in, 2000, uh, in 2007, in July 2007 where you can see there, based on radar information, um, the intensity of that rainstorm. Uh, it's a belt of rain, rather similar to what we have going on at the moment, actually, um, across central and southern England, where you can see in the middle of it we had over 125 millimetres of rainfall um, in that two-day period. A lot of rain. More importantly, in this particular case, the rainfall was very widespread, and um, it was also sitting over the River Severn Basin for a long time. It's almost aligned with the River Severn Basin. So the whole of the area was rained on. Now, rainfall is a statistical function. So we can cite an average amount for a particular location in a day or a month or an hour based on past records when we have them. But it's always possible that in an exceptional event they could be more than ever previously recorded. That is, the storm might be very unusual, but nevertheless possible. And our statistics today, when we do this statistically, we make an assumption that there is no upper limit on what we could see. Now, one of the reasons for that is that if you... Recent research on the jet stream and the upper atmosphere is showing what are now being called atmospheric rivers in the sky. And we've got a couple of examples here. These are modelled. These are based on observations, atmospheric observations, um, physics and so on, radar observations too. And they show water vapour tracking across the Atlantic uh, in different configurations in a, at a kind of high-speed high speed river, if you like, that may drop its rainfall. You see on these particular examples, may drop its rainfall on the UK. Okay, now that's only just started to emerge as one of the influences on heavy rainfall in Britain. But the statistics are complicated. I've already mentioned the issues about intensity and length of storm, but I want to, uh, I want to horrify you by showing you graphs, and uh, I hope you'll bear with me for a second. This is designed to be relatively straightforward. Now, what we've got in this graph, at the side of the graph, we've got rainfall in millimetres, an amount of rainfall and across the bottom, I want you just to look at the, um, the numbers where I've put the rings. So just look at the figures where it says 2, 5, 10, 25, and so on. That is how frequently you might expect that amount of rainfall. So where it says 2, you might expect that amount of rainfall every two years. It doesn't mean it'll occur every two years. It means once in two years. And on the right, you can see we've got a figure of 1,000 
which means we might expect that rainfall once in a thousand years. Okay? And then we've also got on this diagram, which is for London, the London area, we've got different, um, uh, different lengths of rainstorm. Now, we tend to get serious flooding when we get, in big rivers certainly, when we get a period of days of flooding. So the uh, top line there, top fuzzy line there, is 10 days, a 10-day rainstorm. How much rain would that generate? Okay, and then at the bottom one there is a, is a one-day storm, which would obviously less, um, generate less rainfall. Now, let me illustrate that with the Birmingham event that we've just seen. And I want to say this is not really very scientific. This is a rough-and-ready calculation. We have 81 millimetres of rainfall in 12 hours. So you can see that at the side here, 81 millimetres of rain in 12 hours. Now, let's assume it was over a day. Let's assume there wasn't any more rainfall that day. If you go across to the line for the one-day event, which is the bottom line, it suggests that that um, amount of rain might occur once in about 200 years. Okay? Now, that sounds relatively unusual. It's an event that we might expect once in 200 years, and people said, we've never seen anything like this before. Well, that's why. But the point is that somewhere in the UK that unusual event is going to occur much more often. There's going to be an event somewhere of some length, perhaps longer, perhaps shorter, anywhere in the UK, almost every day. No, not every day. You know, very, very frequently. So that's a statistical function. And, of course, it's a very uh, preliminary analysis, and it's based only on rainfall data that we already have. Okay. Now, the point is that... Uh, the underlying analysis for this, which was done um, about uh, uh, 10 years or so ago, has separated out data from before and after 1990. And what they have done, actually, is suggested that those lines, and I haven't put the, uh, the other diagram up, but for the north and the west of the country, particularly in Scotland, those lines have gone up, those fuzzy lines have moved up. So since 1990, we're getting more wet periods of days than we had in the past. Now, what that means is that the chances of that occurring is more, is more likely. So if we looked at something like a 50-year event, an event that was showing up at once in 50 years, on where I've got those figures at the bottom there, in the, um, in the east of Scotland, um, that's now going to occur once in eight years, not once in 50 years. For the south of Scotland, it's going to occur once in 11 years, not once in 50 years. And um, <clears throat> in the north of Scotland, it's moving less, maybe to, from 50 to 30, once in 35 years. In northern England, the possibility of something occurring is roughly halved. So it's... Um, sorry, the recurrence interval, the frequency which is, is occurring, has doubled. Okay? So these are very serious shifts in changes. Now, that is based on very, uh, uh, in some cases, very dodgy statistics. We only have short period of record. We talk about, in statistical terms, we talk about non-stationary series. That's something for your pub conversation. You know, oh, you say we're dealing with a non-stationary series here. Um, climate change, right? Things can shift further, as with any situation. And if you look at what happened in the north of England, this is a picture of Calderdale, it's a bit blurry, um, 
it flooded in 2014, 2015, and 2016, and they were all exceptional events, statistically. Now, the reason for that is that um, the atmosphere is very complex, and although we're very, very good at forecasting in this country, we have some of the best meteorological science and the best hydrological science anywhere in the world, we are still not able to deal with this uh, uh, completely. What we know is that wet years and dry years come in clusters. They don't come once every... The intense rainstorm doesn't come once every 20 years. It comes in a group. So on this diagram at the bottom here, we've got 1870 through to today. And you can see where the shading is in red. These are averaged. We've had drought years. Some of you here, like me, will remember 1976 as being a very dry year, 75, 76. And you can see just on the right-hand side there, we're in a wet phase at the moment. Now, maybe that shift from 1990 onwards, and you can see it there in the blue line, the blue shading there, maybe that won't persist. Maybe it'll shift back to a dry period. We, don't, we just don't know, actually. But there are clusters. So when we calculate the chances of rain of particular amounts, we are actually assuming things are operating the same way as they always did, and that might be wrong. Okay. So that's all I'm going to say about the statistics of rainfall. Let me turn my attention to what happens when it hits the ground. Nice picture here of the Brecon Beacons earlier this month. Um, rain falls, clearly, and every part of our land... Our land surface lies within a catchment area or a river basin. And water sit, hits the ground and it starts to seep through the soil. Or sometimes if the soil is very shallow, it's going into underground rocks. From mountains and hills like this, it starts to seep towards low points in the ground and emerges in stream channels at some point. If there's an awful lot of it, a lot of water, actually it can get squeezed upwards it gets squeezed up out of the ground. That's actually why we get groundwater flooding, because a lot of water is trying to get through a small area, small depth of soil, and therefore it gets squeezed up onto the surface. Okay. And um, if the ground is saturated, completely soaked, all the little spaces in the ground are full up, then some of that rain will flow over the surface of the ground. Or if the surface of the ground is baked or compacted, that will happen as well. So after a few hours, sometimes it's only minutes in an area uh, such as the one in the picture here, it arrives at a river channel. And funnily enough, we know very, very little about the process of how water actually emerges in a river channel. If you ever walk on a river channel, have you ever seen water seeping into it? I doubt it. People don't, and we don't actually know how the water really gets into river channels. You don't very often see it running over the surface either, but somehow it gets into the channel. So that's future research, I suppose. But once it's in the channel, it's in the channel, we see the channel here, the flow then is more complicated again than you might think. So the water is going downhill, it's going fastest in the channel, in the centre and slower by the bed of the channel, and it's gathering velocity and volume as it progresses downstream. Now, natural channels in the UK are normally adjusted, the river channel is adjusted to something like the peak flow that occurs once every 
two or three years. Now, that occurs because the river channel erodes and sediments, and it, they tend to assume a form which accommodates just about the flow that might be expected once every two to three years. Now, how it does that is beyond the scope of today's talk. But obviously, following very heavy and unusual storms, greater than that, the peak flow that comes down the channel will be bigger than the capacity of the channel to accommodate it. So what happens then? Well, it overflows onto what's called the floodplain. And I'm sure you all know this anyway. The press always describes this as rivers bursting their banks. I mean, rivers don't burst their banks. Did you ever see a river bursting its banks? I don't think so. They overflow onto the top, onto the floodplain. And they take sediment with them and they deposit new features, um, like this one here in this picture of Carlisle in December 2015 after Storm Desmond. Um, and uh, you can see it too in this picture of the Thames estuary is the sediment coming out of the Thames into the Thames estuary. Rivers are naturally mobile. So if it, we need to reflect that. The rivers normally would shift around and so on. If the rain falls mainly on the hills as opposed to the plains, as the water flows downstream, the height of the flood peak actually drops. This is something called attenuation. There's another thing for your pub conversation. So up in the hills, the flood peak, here's the amount of water here on the, on the left, and over time it rises and then it falls away. Further downstream, the flood peak is lower. The amount of, the amount of water might be the same, which will be the area under the curve, it'd be less, but the flood peak would be lower because the channel would be bigger, would be accommodating a larger flow. So that's called attenuation. And if we want to understand more about the movement of flood peaks, I'm afraid we have to go into something even more complex. And I want to involve you in a little thought experiment. So I want you to imagine that on this lectern, I've got a very large block of jelly, okay, a rectangular block of jelly. It's, let's say it's blue, for sake of argument, about this sort of size, right? And I've also got in my hand a very large hammer, Okay, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit the side of the block of jelly. Now, you can probably imagine in your head what's going to happen to that block of jelly. The block of jelly doesn't move much itself, but if you look at the top surface of it, you see a ripple going down it, yeah, from left to right. Can, you, can everybody got that? see that in their heads? My blue jelly, and there's this ripple going from left to right. Now, it's a shock wave. The jelly block itself isn't going anywhere much, but there's a shock wave passing through it. And that's exactly what happens in a river channel. We have water arriving at the top of the channel. It flows into the channel. It sends a shock down the channel. And the flood wave, the peak of the water, travels faster than the water itself. Right? So the flood wave is travelling at one mile an hour or something, more than that probably, one metre per second, let's say. But the flood wave might be travelling half as fast again because there's a shock wave. So the, rather than a block of jelly, which is stationary, our water is already moving, but the flood wave is moving faster than that. And this is where we get problems in trying to model what's happening because not only is that water, the, the flood wave travelling faster than the water... There are bits and pieces of it overflowing onto the floodplain all over the place as well and coming back in again. 
And it makes it very, very difficult to model what is actually going on, to understand what is actually going on. We've altered the courses and the sizes of river channels over millennia, not least, of course, by trying to control the flooding. And beyond that, of course, when we try to start understanding what's happening, every flood is influenced by a different set of circumstances, different weather, different channel, different gradients, different vegetation, different soil moisture, and so on. Now, when we meet the bottom of a river channel, the lower courses of a river, you can probably recognise this. This is a satellite image of, of London taken in 2001. Things become even more complicated. Floodplains are very popular places for things like high-value agriculture and building. And in our towns and cities, we've put in walls and sluices and bridges and mill leats and landing stages and all sorts of other structures like the Docklands you can see here at the Isle of Dogs um, uh, along the Thames. We've also encroached on the river channel. We've made it narrower in lots of places. So we do all these things, and then we complain that the structures are being flooded on the floodplain by unstoppable events. We say, well, why isn't somebody doing something about this? And actually, tr traditionally, we've tried to do something about it. We've built dams and flood barriers to hold the water back, or we've built walls and diversion channels, and we've dredged and straightened to try and get the water away downstream faster. Now, today, there's a much greater interest in a variety of other kinds of approaches, including intervening to try to disrupt that downstream flow of water at every stage, from the hills, in the upstream parts of the floodplain, everywhere in the channel, we're trying to encourage it to evaporate or infiltrate into the ground. And those are called catchment-based or natural flood management techniques. And they are said to be more holistic. So they're not just an engineering solution. They're supposed to be kinder to nature, for example. And probably they are. But it's not proved very easy to establish the extent to which those approaches have actually reduced flood risk or flood damage. Now, arguably, we haven't yet tried at sufficiently large scale and for long enough. But experimenting, of course, with what may be people's lives is not a very popular stance for a politician and those who vote money for these projects. They often prefer something more traditional, where a wall or a diversion channel can be seen. We also know that politicians are not the only people with views on what should be done. There are a great many stakeholders in flooding and flood management. Some of us are in this room tonight. We're all stakeholders, and we have different perspectives. We might even disagree about what we're trying to do. So some people would say the goal of the enterprise is to stop the flooding. That's usually what a politician will say, for example. Or somebody else might say, well, we're trying to reduce the frequency of the flooding. And somebody else might say, we're trying to reduce the cost of the damage. An insurance company, for example, might say that, because perhaps we expect that there will always be floods, they're going to continue, but we'll try and reduce the cost of it. Or we might, try, we might say, well, we're trying to ensure that the right people will pay to sort it out, i.e. not us, somebody else will sort it out. Or we might say it's going to be a cost on society generally, like education or defence, and just accept that. 
Now, another possibility is that our principal target might be to stop people drowning. You know, that would be fairly important. But those are very, very different goals, those different things. And at present, we're spending approximately, according to the Green Alliance, a Green Alliance report uh, 18 months ago, we're spending about £613 million a year dealing with the after effects of flood. That's public money. £613 million, and only £216 million on hard flood defences, as they describe. Now, of course, we then might have to say, well, is that the right balance? We're spending more on dealing with the aftermath than putting in walls or reservoirs or whatever it might be to hold water. Now, some of you will have heard me talk before about something that is a wicked problem, and I'm going to come back to that at the end of my talk. But what I want to take you through for a few minutes is a kind of Chaucerian pilgrimage towards a solution. I'm going to start off with the tale of the farmer, or the myth of the farmer. And here he is. Here's our farmer. Now, um, we spend in this country about £1.5 billion a year on subsidising farmers on land management methods that might actually increase the vulnerability to flooding. And we only spend probably 400, the figure is 416 million, so that's a third of that, no, yes, a third of that, on land management that reduces flooding. We're funding farmers actually to farm intensively, principally through the common agricultural policy. Now, I, I'm not going to talk about Brexit at all, I'm still crying actually at the vote, but um, there's no doubt about it that the common agricultural policy environmentally has been something of a disaster in the case of flooding. And people talk about what farmers should be doing. What we see when we look at upland areas, and George Monbiot writes very um, ably about this, we, in places like the Brecon Beacons, you can see on the hillside there gullying. As soon as that water, thinking about that water coming into those channels, as soon as it gets into the gullies, it starts flowing a hell of a lot faster than it would have done when throwing through soil. And this is the sort of thing that happens. This is the sort of thing that we see in some of our uplands. Now, farmers aren't setting out deliberately to enhance flooding. They've been incentivized to produce cheap food. That's been their objective. And things like chemical fertilizers and large tractors that compact the soil and decrease the infiltration generated runoff over the surface of the ground and it's eroded out gullies and it's reduced the soil depth and there's a positive feedback there so now we get more flooding. So what we're doing with our farmers is actually increasing the flooding downstream by encouraging them to use large tractors um, and here's where the topsoil goes. You can see it running out onto roads if you drive around agricultural areas after heavy rainfall. And it blocks up drains and it silts up river channels if there's a lot of it. And again, that increases the chances of flooding further down the catchment because the river, although it will adjust to this sediment eventually in due course and the water, temporarily there will be a lot of sediment in it. And that's not good for flooding. The other thing is that Upland farming, we are encouraging sheep, high-density sheep farming in the British uplands. And those sheep are, sadly, even though they're very pretty and not aware of it themselves, they are compacting the soil. So they are part of the problem. 
we're encouraging high-intensity sheep farming. Now, there are some organisations trying to do something about this. Southwest Water, one of the water companies, for example, has had a whole programme called Upstream Thinking, where they've started paying farmers to try and hold the water back on the land, blocking up drains, which farmers also have been encouraged to, to, to put in, blocking up what in the north of England are called grips to hold the water back. Um, there's been experiments done on looking at whether this is effective. The truth of the matter is we don't know whether it's effective or not because it's not been done at large enough scale or for long enough to find out. Um, we've also been experimenting with tree planting. People say, let's plant lots of trees, let's re recreate the Bronze Age woodlands of Britain. Now, I like trees, and I know lots of you in the audience are very fond of trees as well. But actually, trees don't always reduce runoff. It's absolutely right that pristine forest will generate less runoff and less peak flow than, than say, grassland with, with sheep all over it. But as soon as you allow people into the forest for recreation, and that's when people make money out of forests, it's not out of the timber these days, it's out of recreation, like cycling and all of that kind of stuff, you compact the soil and you reduce the infiltration. And if you put ditches in, as the Forestry Commission used to do with coniferous trees to get them to grow, you can increase the flooding massively downstream. So it's not as simple as just saying, let's put in trees on farms, let's replace intensive farming with trees. That's not going to work. Now, here's our next Chaucerian character, the engineer myth, and there is a little variant on this, which is the highways agency myth, and here we can see some engineers, I don't know what they're looking at actually, but um, looking very intently at something, there's two groups if you look carefully, the orange hats and the white hats, I always had a white hat because I was told when I had one that, that these were for senior people, and uh, <laughs> I'd like to be one of those, so anyway, two groups there, um, and Let's think about engineers. Now, what do we see when we imagine engineering and flooding? We see opportunity. We see opportunity for building big things. If you're going to do something that protects a power station, like this one, you need perhaps to think about a big scheme. We've already fiddled with a lot of our channels. This is in the middle reaches of the Severn. When it was looked at, people found in the red dots there points where some kind of drain or other was coming into the river from somewhere, probably unknown, because we don't know where a lot of these drains actually are, or where they run. They're feeding water into the river. So engineers have already been at work, probably for hundreds of years. This is in the centre of the, or the middle reaches of the River Severn. And lower down the river, this is what we see, of course, this is in Hereford, and Worcester, we see lots of water, and it needs dealing with. Now, you can deal with things in a number of ways. Oh, sorry, this is just to illustrate the highways agency's interest, because their interest is keeping water off roads as fast as possible, because we don't want the traffic held up. So, what are we going to do? Well, one solution is we're going to dredge the channel, make it bigger. This picture's taken in Kent, but we're going to make the channel bigger by dredging. Okay, bigger channel, water will go faster on downstream, it won't be our problem. 
Okay. Now, in the Somerset Levels case, um, it, the Environment Agency was 2014, and I'm sure some of you remember this event. Um, the Environment, Environment Agency said it had spent £45 million in the previous year alone on what it called improving river flow, which is dredging, basically, and taking mattresses and shopping trolleys out of the rivers. Um, very complex, very controversial, and most people would say, most specialists would say, that's not going to be the answer, because the rivers will simply adjust again to what they are expecting in a, over a period of years. They will adjust to this two- to three-year event. In fact, the rivers in the Somerset levels are largely not natural phenomena at all. But it's a pretty thorny problem. And different people have different views. So obviously, a farmer says, get the Environment Agency to dredge. That's what we need to do. This is the second year in a row, and we've been banging on to the agency, and they are to clean the rivers. They are 42% silted up. I don't know where that figure comes from. But the National Farmers Union was saying the same thing. Consistent, or significant and consistent river maintenance. Urgent action required by the Environment Agency. More resources, um, or we won't trust anybody in government anymore. And you might remember the chap at the top there. Remember that um, forage aid? There was a big programme of bringing in animal um, food because some of these people had um, stock that was stuck in places and they couldn't feed them. There was forage for them, hay and stuff was brought from all over the country in a huge kind of operation. Um, some of the professional bodies said something different. The professional body, one of them here, the Chartered Institute, Institution of Water and Environmental Management, said the channel can never carry enough water when compared to the size of the floodplain because building up riverbanks and dredging is very old-fashioned. It works to a point when we get these big events, it's not enough. So the authorities should still give farmers incentive to help to keep a portion of their land as floodplain. What nobody said was, nobody dared to say, that the upland farmers are partly responsible for this because they're producing cheap food, because that's what we've told them to do, and that's reducing the amount of soil and increasing the flooding. And when we bring in a politician, this is uh, Ian Little Granger, he said, that's pathetic, he said, that view ridiculous excuse. These rivers have never flooded to this level ever in living memory. And we've got people who've been here for a long time. Now, I don't know what the average lifespan is in Somerset, but it's not going to be several hundred years, clearly. Um, and even if you look back into the mists of time, you don't have this. In fact, it's completely untrue, because the mists of time, Somerset was largely underwater. Okay. Engineering solutions, though, like this, this wall, this kind of thing, are very, very popular with engineers. And um, here's another example. This is Warrington. £34 million flood defences from the Mersey protect various things. And it was funded by you and I, grant in aid, Borough Council, Scottish Power, the Environment Agency, and so on. Big wall. Of course, if we have that extreme event, that wall is going to be a disaster because the water is going to be over the top and then it can't get back into the river. So the flood is going to be there for longer. And at some point, it will be overtopped because of that statistical function I talked about. Okay, so what next then? Well, we produce these flood maps and we put in, in some of these, if you just look at the top right there, there's a little bit of area in the map 
of flooding, and I'll come back to these in a second, flood storage areas. We're encouraging some farmers to give up a bit of land to store water to stop Kidderminster being flooded. Okay, and that's one way of approaching it. We've also got temporary flood barriers. These are on the River Severn again. These are at Bewdley. Um, you can see here, just on the left of the picture there, temporary barriers. So when there's a, a forecast of rain, hundreds of men rush out with these big steel posts and they drop these barriers in. In 2007, they tried to do it and the barriers were in the wrong place and the road was flooded and they couldn't get there. So it's problematic. It's not a perfect solution, but it's certainly a sort of technical engineering solution. And, you know, those people in those houses, they're probably pretty grateful, actually. What's the next myth? Well, you've probably been reading in the paper about beavers, yeah? Beavers are going to sort this out, this flooding problem. Um, now, beavers are an interesting phenomenon. There used to be lots of beavers in Britain, and a lot of our rivers were very messy with lots of wood in them and lots of beavers. And those blockages in the channel held the water back temporarily. We've started experimenting with this, the reintroduction of beavers. There's a little experiment going on at the moment in, in Devon. There's been a longer one in Scotland about which... Not much has been said because they were worried about people hunting the beavers. But my understanding of this is two beavers were introduced into a fenced-off area in Devon. And what it showed was, if you look at the um, diagram at the top right, above, in the river above where the beavers were, when it rained, the flood went up and down quite quickly and very significantly. And below the beaver, the red line the flood peak was much lower because the water was being held back in these little ponds and behind these little dams that beavers, uh, beavers build. Now, I don't have time to go through all of this. Um, there's a whole lot of science. There's a lot of science being produced. Um, if you look at it statistically, we've got above beaver on the x-axis here and below beaver on the vertical axis. And um, if you look at some of this, the, these are... Uh, diagrams that if the beavers are doing something significant to the flood peak, which is the um, it's, it's the top the top diagram there, um, the dots should be in the area below the dashed line, which is equivalence. That, if it was if the points fell on that dashed line, it would mean no change. The beavers had done nothing, achieved nothing despite their endeavours. They're below that, so the flood peaks have been reduced by the beavers. But we don't know anything about, beg your pardon, we don't know anything about the significance of this at large scale. It would be lovely to think we could have loads of beavers beavering away on our behalf to solve flooding. But at the moment, there's only two, right? And that's not going to do it. Okay, so what's the next myth? Uh, the council will sort it out. Well, I don't have time to go through all these myths in huge detail. Um, the council is not going to sort it out, I'm afraid. Um, here's Leicestershire, not far from where I was brought up. Of course, the council are finding flooding very problematic because they have to deal with the social services for people who get flooded, and it's very expensive. But they alone are not going to be able to sort it out, and they put very small amounts of money relatively uh, into sorting it out. Um, they do have some specific responsibilities for things like bridges, to stop bridges getting in the way of flood water. 
by this sort of thing. This was the Boss Castle flood in Cornwall in 2004. And um, one of the things that happened, you can just see buried under that debris, a bridge. It was blocked up, and it was blocked up by timber and cars and all sorts of things. People have started to do research on this, and I love this, because this is research being done with dinky toys in a little lab. And here's some bridges, different kinds of bridges, and you can see the cars that people are researching what happens to the cars when they get jammed in the bridges. I actually saw this, uh, this kind of thing for real with caravans in the, in the, in the River Avon in about 2000, when caravans were stacked up like dominoes against bridges and blocked the water and caused flooding. So, um, research is going on. Again, we know next to nothing <laughs> about it. And I just put this in to say that councils, in my experience, are sharks. That's all. They probably won't do very much that's helpful. Um, let's go on. The landscape architect and the architect myth and the Chaucerian parade towards this future with no flooding. Um, okay, designing to maximise infiltration and minimise runoff. Mm, that's New York, but it could be London, probably. Um, we've got problems at the moment, and we are doing stuff. Now, I took this in Paris, I should say Western Paris. If you look really carefully, in the middle of the bus shelter, there's something called a green roof. Um, it's a roof covered in vegetation, and it's being trumpeted by the Parisian government as being a major contribution to flood management. Now, that's what the saying looked like in January. Um, I don't think flood, you know, green roofs like that are not going to solve it. But there are other techniques, sustainable drainage systems, and these are a bit more promising. Now, again, I don't have time to go into this in huge detail. This is, I think, in somewhere near Cambridge. Um, people are designing housing areas and industrial areas to trap water into ponds and channels and so on. And this is an example of what can be achieved. It looks quite attractive. Um, designing with permeable paving. This is a project done by a British construction company, Arup. You can see their soft paving and some nice flowers so the water can infiltrate. Um, that's a solution. But on the other hand, we've got the myth of the front drive, which again, you've seen, this isn't a person, but... You've seen front drive, probably in the newspapers, you've seen a lot of shouting about people paving their front drives. I'm guessing half of you in this room, if you have a front drive, it's probably paved. And it's your fault that we're flooding, apparently, um, because it's paved, it's not permeable, and it's causing runoff. And research is going on into that. Um, front gardens covered with impermeable paving in residential areas like this is Edinburgh. And the research is showing... First of all, the Horticultural Society got statistics about how many front gardens are paved. Um, so uh, at least 75% paved. London actually is very low, which is rather odd. I found that rather challenging to believe. The worst offenders are North East England. It's always nice when it's somewhere a long way away from here, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, and again, I can't go through all of this in detail, but it does make a difference. If you pave, if you completely pave over a garden, it will make a difference to flooding. Not very much, but some. And it's going to make a different difference with different soil types. Now, I'm going to go through very quickly through the remainder of the myths. I don't think paving front garden is going to be responsible for something like that. Clearly it isn't. It's a contributor, but it's not the most significant thing. Nor is it responsible for something like this in the River Ouse, 
in, uh, in 2015, where actually the allegation was that water had been diverted from one area to flood another for a period of days because the other area was less valuable. And in fact, it had been. That was deliberate policy. Okay. So here's another myth, the scientist myth. Scientists are going to sort this out, say the scientists. Well, actually, the scientists are not. The scientists may do the research, and some of the research is fascinating. This is a very recent thing. This is ground settlement in millimetres a year in London. And where it's red, around Canary Wharf there, the ground is set, uh, settling at quite a rate. Um, I think it's something like in excess of two millimetres a year, which doesn't sound much, but actually over a period of time, that's quite a lot. And it's because around all these skyscrapers, we're pumping water out of the ground. And so the ground is actually going down. And that's not good for flooding. The little red line there is actually crossrail. Um, and that's not the hole in the ground that is crossrail. That's also dewatering. The ground is sinking, according to Imperial College research. Scientists are always doing work on flood modelling as well, and we'll come back to that in a second. But here's another myth. Uh, the point about scientists is we won't solve the problem, we can only give the information. And it's not all good because only some research is funded. The Environment Agency is responsible, possibly. Um, one person, I've got a quote from one person who described it as a bloated, let me get this right, bloated and inefficient with a budget of 1.2 billion and 11,000 staff, but it couldn't find 4 million to dredge the Somerset levels, but it did find 31 million to flood acres of farmland on the Somerset coast to create a bird habitat. Well, okay, that was a choice that was made. Um, actually, that flooding was supposed to stop sea, uh, that bird habitat was going to stop sea incursion. Here's, I think, my last but one myth. The water company. The water company is responsible for flooding and should sort it out. Now, water companies are mainly responsible for sewers. And um, when you get a sewer blockage, water companies come in and have to try and do something. Now, I'm going to show you something. I hope it doesn't get Gresham sued. But some of you may be interested in the Thames Tunnel which is supposed to have an impact on flooding, at least in part. It's mainly put there for water quality reasons. It's going to cost everybody who pays uh, water rates or water bills in London £25 a year on your bill forever to pay for it. And it's going to intercept water coming down from paved areas on the edge of London and take it away under the river. And it's a huge project. It's very, very expensive. And if we just reverted for a minute to engineers, we'd say this is a vanity project. Um, why are they doing it? Well, why are they doing it? Engineers love it because for them it's great. But Thames Water may not have their principal interest on flooding. Their principal interest is probably their shareholders. And uh, they haven't paid corporation tax in the UK, according to the Observer, a few days ago, ever. So... Anyway, they've banked a lot of money. So maybe that's not their focus. And then there's politicians. Oh, my goodness. What can I say? I won't say anything. Um, there we go. Now, um, lots of flooding, lots of problems, some technological solutions, suds. Let's make it sink into the ground. Let's 
persuade individual householders to put a door guard in to keep the flooding out of their house. There's a wonderful advert on the internet that shows a row of terraced houses with one of them who's got a door guard to stop the water going in the front door, but it doesn't explain what happens to the ones either side that couldn't afford one, and then the water just comes in through the wall either side. So individual property solutions probably not going to give you the right answer, even if technologically they work. In fact, none of those catchment management and local management solutions are going to solve the problem of flooding. Some of them might make a marginal difference. All of them are perhaps worth experimenting with, but none of them is going to solve the natural problem, not even the scientists, the climate scientists, because we know, I'll skip over some of these because it's very quick, we know that shifting rainfall patterns are already happening to a certain extent. But, interestingly, this is... Um, Go for this one. Interestingly, the towns and cities in the UK expecting more flooding are quite a long way away from London, where the decision makers sit. And I was kind of vaguely hoping, I wasn't really, but I was kind of vaguely hoping today that we'd get a nice sharp, intense rainstorm over Chelsea, where a lot of politicians live, because that might actually prompt some action on this. But you can see here, places like Carlisle are expecting 79% um, more water per flooding event in the, because of climate change and various other shifts. Um, there's no timescale given on here, but it's over a period of till 2050. Okay, now I want to start concluding here very quickly. These are, as some of you have heard me say before, wicked problems, really complex problems where we don't understand the problem, we don't agree what the solution is, we've got people, we've got science, we've got physical things, sociological things and so on. We do something one place and we trigger off something happening somewhere else. Diverting the water downstream is great if you do that in Budley, but they won't thank you in Gloucester. Okay? Lots of different people who don't agree what's important, who talk in different ways about it, and they couldn't probably even agree if the problem had been solved. Now, that's, that phrase, wicked problems, has been based on work done in the 1970s. It's been around for ages. And very recently, oh, and sorry, there's the Prince of Wales tackling a wicked problem after the flooding in 2007 in Gloucestershire. Um, but we've now got another category called super wicked problems, where time is running out, and the people who are supposed to be providing a solution, like Thames Water, say, are actually partly causing the problem. There's no central authority. We don't have anybody responsible for managing river basins as a whole anymore in this country. And politicians have a, life, a, a time horizon which says, am I going to get elected next time? Not the 200-year event. So super wicked problems is something that's popped up recently. I want to give you, I want to end with a third category, hyper wicked problems, okay, where some of the stakeholders are being very economical with the facts for some reason unexplained, probably personal or professional gain. I'm teasing slightly, I haven't published this yet. But, so I want you to go away for your public, your, your um, thinking about this with wicked problems, super wicked problems, and hyper wicked problems. Hyper wicked problems, flooding is a real hyper wicked problem. And we're going to conclude by saying who's to blame, everyone and no one, it's a natural process, we live with it, we know what we've got to do, but we're not doing it at the moment because we're not even really talking about it because we've forgotten until this week about it. And I'll end with 
Um, flooding in the Seine in 1876, this rather nice impressionist painting. Um, I was just there on holiday earlier in the year, contributing to global warming by having flown, I'm afraid to say. Thank you.